Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, everybody. I'm Emily Trenum, and you're listening to WYXR 91.7 at Crosstown Memphis. And today I'm delighted to welcome Amber Lombardo. Amber is the newish executive director of the Memphis chapter of the American Institute of Architects. And so wanted to have her on the show to learn a little more about her. And I'm hoping that we can do, we've talked about architecture for sure in the past, mostly in the context of historic preservation, but um, definitely want to do more architecture oriented shows. So hopefully this is the first of those. So welcome to the show, Amber. Thank you for having me, Emily. So Amber, just let's start out. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself because you're new to Memphis, new to this position and, you know, what's your background and what made you, I mean, obviously we're delighted you came to Memphis and, but what made you decide to make the big move to Memphis to the AIA? Thank you for asking. This is one of my favorite topics. Um, I've actually lived uh, in Collierville for Uh, 17 years. So I've been a neighbor for a very long time. Um, Prior to this position, I was the executive director for the Mississippi chapter of the American Institute of Architects and worked there um, primarily on historic tax credits and the preservation industry. Um, I was with Mississippi Heritage Trust for a a bit. And prior to that, um, sold a 17-year-old advertising agency. So I'd like to say I cut my teeth in the ad industry. I have some ad industry in my background as well. <laughs> but you're not an art, but are you, are you an architect? I am not. I am an architect groupie, but I, I do have a portion of my degree. I have a very strange interdisciplinary studies degree from Mississippi State. Uh, architecture is a third of it, along with civil engineering and marketing. So um, they essentially sort of kicked me out because I'd been there too long. And this job was perfect for that very bizarre degree. So it all worked out well. Well, that's great. And so I don't know whether we'll have time to talk about this today. But if we don't, you know, I'm very interested in efforts to get a, you know, a statewide uh, tax credit for historic preservation adopted here. I think I saw something on your website about it. So maybe we'll do a separate show on that and you and Holly can come. We'll talk about why it's needed and um, and then talk about, you know, advocacy efforts to to make that happen because that really needs to happen. Absolutely. Anytime. It's one of my favorite topics. So, Probably a lot of people listening know about AIA, but um, I'm a big person who likes to start at the beginning. And um, and I don't know if you've listened to my show, but I have a jargon bell that I ring if <laughs> people use jargon or I use jargon and we have to stop and define terms. 
I may need, not need that today, but so, um, so what is the AIA and, and I want to talk in a minute about some of your, um, programs and priorities, but just what's the AIA and how long has the Memphis chapter been around? Who are the members? Give us the kind of, um, the elevator speech about that. Sure. Um, AIA Memphis was established in 1953. So uh, we're what, 70 years old almost. Um, and we are a part of a state level organization, AIA Tennessee, which is then uh, all of us are a part of a national, actually international, the American Institute of Architects, we call it the Institute for short. Um, but as a, as a collaborative group, the, the whole organization represents over 95,000 professional architects all across the world. Um, you know, some of the things I like to brag about architects that most folks are not aware of is that they um, take very proactive stances in topics that may surprise you, like climate action, um, equity, diversity, and inclusion is a primary focus right now. Sustainability, of course, even school safety design. Um, you know, I think that a lot of times we kind of narrow our focus on what we think an architect does, but the American Institute of Architects broadens that substantially. Um, but in a nutshell, um, architects drive positive change through the power of design. So that's sort of the elevator pitch piece. So how many members are there locally? And is it, is it, um, you know, is it urban designers, landscape architects? I mean, they have their own groups as well, but is it just architects or is it um, sort of the allied professions? Um, AIA represents only architects of the built environment. Um, and we have a little over 300 members that, I mean, we hover 300 to 320. Um, we also have allied partners, which are corporate partners that, um, sort of bring to life the designs of these architects, and those members range anywhere from 50 to 100, given, you know, what the climate is that particular year. Oh, let me have, we have one other group of members. I don't want to forget them. They're the lunatics. Um, and this is a... Well, I'm a, a lunatic. I'm a lunatic. You're a lunatic, so you know. I'm glad I didn't forget it then. Um, yeah, well, then you're aware this is our uh, outreach for the general public. A very small group because it it generally um, is isolated to tours of uh, projects and because there's limited space then we have to keep the membership very limited on that um, so it's not something we really promote a whole lot well plus covid and covid um yeah i've been a i've been a um you know, I think I'm a charter member. So if anyone doesn't know, Lunatex is a really great, or it's really a, it's almost like an architecture fan club that is run by AIA Memphis. And it's kind of behind the scenes tours of all kinds of some historic properties, but mostly new developments. Usually the architect is there um, to talk about the project. And there's, you know, some adult beverages and it's just really fun. So um, hopefully when COVID's over, Lunatex will be coming back and I encourage everyone to sign up for it because it's really a great, it's a great opportunity to learn more about architecture um, from the people that are doing it. So I hope you don't mind, Amber, that I gave that big commercial because I love Lunatex. 
that worked out perfectly for me. <laughs> Nothing like an endorsement. Exactly. So, um, so I know that, um, that you, you know, you're, I'm interested in sort of what the AIA programs are locally, but I know you're, you've just been doing some planning for the future. So share a little bit about that with us. And I'm really interested in, um, what you mentioned a minute ago about some of these other, uh, non I mean, non-designer design related issues such as uh, diversity, inclusion, um, climate change. So share your some priorities, even if they're not final, you know, where that discussion is. Um, and then it sounds like some of those might be included in that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the uh, sort of the platform of the national AIA is infiltrated throughout our programming in different ways. So for instance, um, we have an ongoing luncheon every month. Um, and right now we've been focusing on historic preservation as a means to sustainable architecture. Uh, the greenest building is the one that's already built is the uh, expression by Carl Elefante, one of our former Institute presidents. Um, and in that we talked a lot about the historic tax credit. I cannot wait for you to circle back on that topic. It's one of my favorites. Um, Councilman Carlisle was one of our uh, guest speakers at that, along with Holly from the Memphis Heritage Organization, and um, which is a nice segue into sort of the community design environment. Uh, we have it historically uh, done a program called the Community Leaders Summit, uh, and this is where we pair our member architects along with um, elected officials in the community to talk about the challenges unique to Memphis and how architecture can address some of them. So it's like a, a full day charrette of um, creative thinking, problem solving with our professionals. That's a, a great program. We can't wait to, hopefully we're gonna, we're shooting for July, but we'll see. Obviously it depends on guidelines um, from the health agencies. So uh, each year we have kind of a standing group of events that are very popular. Uh, we have a, a design awards um, gala, usually in the spring. Uh, this past year, we held it in the fall at the Grove at GPAC. Um, we felt like it was a very safe event, so we're going to attempt that again in the spring. We haven't quite firmed up the venue yet, uh, but we're shooting for May uh, for that. Um, we also honor individuals um, who have a lifetime of service, firms. Um, a lot of times we'll incorporate some sort of a youth component. Uh, to award because we'd like to get the community involved in that as well. Um, new this year, we are publishing Folio. It's a printed annual of architecture for Memphis. And sort of our long range goal is that we'll be able to look at a bookshelf and see each year um, a guide to what was happening in the architectural community for that particular year. So 2021 is in the progress of being um, developed right now, designed, the content's coming in. We're going to print in a couple of weeks. Um, it'll include, it'll feature our 2020 Design Award winners. Um, it will also talk extensively about historic tax credits, specifically the AIA Tennessee advocacy efforts for it. Um, our local representative from Collierville, Kevin Vaughn, is the sponsor of the bill this year. So we're going to talk with him uh, in the magazine. Um, acknowledge some lifetime service awards like 
Rob Norcross from LRK, who received our Gassner Award this year. It's a very special honor. So those are some of the things that'll be in this print annual, brand new this year. Our golf tournament's really popular. That's planned for the fall. Um, and also new this year, you know, while our title is AIA Memphis, we serve a large portion of West Tennessee, about, I don't know, about a fourth of the state, maybe a little bit less. Uh, and so we're developing what's tentatively called our road show, where we will be going to civics clubs uh, all across that portion of the state, Rotaries, Kiwanis clubs, for instance, and educating about architects' impact in the community and since historic tax credits. Uh, and especially their impacts in small towns is one of our featured topics this year. That's what we're going to be covering during that road show. Beyond that, um, we have a host of uh, different smaller functions, receptions, and so on. Uh, we keep a great active calendar on our website, aiamemphis.org, for more details on any of this. So the couple of follow-up questions. So the the community leader summit. Um, explain a little more about what that is. That sounds interesting. And an example of what of, of what actually might be done at one of those. Sure. I know you're um, new, so you probably haven't been to that in the past, <laughs> but it just it sounded interesting. Because you talked about elected officials sort of getting educated about how architects can help address civic challenges. So that, you know, got me interested. Absolutely. Um, yes, while I've not attended one of these in the Memphis history, uh, they typically involve looking at a city from an urban planning and design perspective. Um, and some of these uh Challenges might be walkable communities, for instance, um, creating a better environment for residential downtown um, people to uh, overcome food deserts. Those sorts of challenges that uh, are not unique to Memphis, uh, but can specifically be addressed by thoughtful and proactive measures uh, in the design community and in the development community. So. You know, as um, elected officials become aware of how architects experience and expertise and knowledge can help inform some of those decisions, then hopefully they'll be invited to the table more often for input and guidance and feedback on um, city planning types of decisions. That makes sense. Does the AIA nationally, I know the Urban Land Institute, um, you know, they have these technical assistance panels, they're able to bring in subject matter experts from around the country um, to actually work on, you know, to over a couple of days to very intensively work on a particular challenge. And I'm sure architects are on those sometimes because people sometimes, um, not unusual for architect planners, you know, to be one and the same. But does the AIA have that kind of um you know, ability to bring in um, people from other communities to help inform our local um, our local situation. Absolutely, you know the to me the greatest strength of AIA is in its network of professionals that are involved. So, in most major municipalities, there's an executive director like me that oversees a component full of professionals, and so. Um, 
if you have a unique, let's say flooding in Memphis might be an issue that is common here. Um, we might have professionals from the Mississippi Gulf Coast who have uh, worked through hurricane conditions, for instance, to come and um, provide education to our members um, and the community at large. Most times the community is always invited uh, for lessons learned, you know, specifically after Hurricane Katrina, um, those architects uh, really um, increased their um, ingenuity in many cases uh, in planning, especially for mitigating the effects of climate change that is becoming more and more prevalent. And, you know, we're not insulated from that by any stretch here in Memphis. You know, one of the things that I've been talking with recently is seismic activity and how it impacts Memphis. We have a local um, vendor who has a specific and unique knowledge in that. So yes, I guess the short answer is we have tremendous resources within our network and professionals who can help assist. That's great. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR on 91.7 FM and I'm talking to Amber Lombardo, who's the executive director of the Memphis chapter of the American Institute of Architects. So, Amber, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, how, I mean, I know that, um, you know, economic cycles, um, especially as they relate to real estate, have a big impact on the on the architecture profession. I mean, I was here, I worked in community development for many years and was here, of course, during the downturn in the mid 2000s, which really, you know, um, was bad for architects, um, for the profession. And um, so, you know, I'm sort of interested in how, how you think, you know, locally and nationally architects have been impacted by COVID and then locally, you know, there's so much building happening here. Well, as you might expect, anytime there's an economic recession, uh, there's a ripple effect in most every industry. Um, what we've seen is that job sites have continued to um, remain in progress. Um, we have seen an increase in delays due to uh, materials availability. We have seen architecture firms that have um, either furloughed or laid off, but not, not as much as I think many of the other industries that have suffered most, specifically like the hospitality industry. Um, in, in some cases, um, the absence of occupants in buildings because of work from home patterns has created a better construction environment because then, you know, they can make noise and work through any hour of the day um, in order to, to finish projects. So uh, I think predictably overall, we've seen some negative impact, but with like with every cycle, uh, we'll expect to see an increase um, once the virus gets more and more under control. So we remain optimistic. Membership has been very strong. We've just come through our renewal cycle and um, we are pretty much on track with where we've been in previous years, but I'm not sure that's an indicator of the firm's um, health as much as it is their reliance on an organization that markets them actively. So, uh, but nevertheless, the over the prevailing 
message, I suppose, is that impacted but optimistic. That's great. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, one of the many you know weirdnesses of COVID is how you know is this patchwork of local, state, federal, um, you know, lack of consistency in in the, in the response generally. Um, and you know, one of the things here, and I know you're pay more attention to this even than I do, is that you know, construction just never stopped. It's kept, I mean, a lot of cities, that was just shut down. And all those people went home. Well, that has not happened here. Not only has construction, originally, I thought, well, projects that are in the pipeline, of course, that have all their money lined up, they're just chugging on. But then new projects have started. And I mean, I think it's great. It's been great for construction industry, hopefully good for architects as well. But it's just, I'm sure, I'm sure the experience really varies a lot between communities. Absolutely. You know, and on that topic, this is one of the ways that architects responded that might surprise a lot of people. Um, they, the architectural community is spread all out in various rural regions all throughout the country. And so when there was um, an initial expectation that we would need alternative care facilities, architects started sort of crowdsourcing information about vacant properties in their communities that may not be cataloged otherwise. You know, so it was an impressive sort of coming together. The Institute also provided a tremendous amount of free resources to um, building owners for them to understand the requirements uh, to transition to a, one of those healthcare facilities. Um, so, you know, what I love about the profession and its people is that they have great big hearts and they, uh, they come out in a crisis. Um, you know, we, I, similar but different, um, we have uh, what's called SAP certification training and that's rapid safety assessments after natural disasters. So you might imagine after a tornado comes through these certified architects go into the community and do a rapid assessment to determine if the building is safe to inhabit again. Um, you know, so these are all things I didn't know before I became involved with AIA. And I really want the community to start to understand um, the breadth and depth of their involvement. Yeah, I didn't know that either. It doesn't surprise me. Um, but that's great. And, and, you know, when, and this is, um, I mean, that this show is a little wonky anyway, because I'm interested in a lot of these nerdy subjects, but, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've heard that, you know, COVID is going to change how buildings are designed generally going forward. And, uh, because it's changing how people work, um, and also changing the kind of building systems that are going to be needed. And I'd be interested in doing a show on that with, if it wasn't just too much in the weeds, because um, I've, I've definitely heard quite a bit about that. Yeah, you know, one of the one of the unintended consequences of this was an increase in residential architecture work. Um, you know, people who needed better home office facilities that might isolate them away from their children or their dogs. Um, that has increased, and which is great. Um, for our architects to be able to do that kind of work. In other ways, it has tremendously impacted hospitality-related 
architecture firms uh, because if people can't, you know, visit hotels, then construction projects um, stop or in some cases cease altogether. Uh, so um, in, in different aspects of our profession have been impacted in vastly different ways. Yeah, th yeah that makes sense, actually, that um, that people have probably had to, we won't use the word pivot, people have had to swerve. <laughs> and um, because, yeah, I mean, people do specialize in hotels, or they specialize in residential. And I'm sure there's been, like you said, though, I hadn't thought of that. But of course, some of those sectors have really been impacted in completely different ways. So do you get involved in, um, we talked about, you know, a statewide historic tax credit. So obviously you and AI do some advocacy work, but do you do get involved in sort of local advocacy? Like I was thinking about, you know, a lot of these new projects uh, that have been happening locally are supported uh, by a local residential pilot, you know, payment in lieu of taxes that helps to, you know, bring the development costs down. Do you get involved in lobbying for or against those kinds of things, this AIA locally? Um, we advocate for uh, many different things. Um, the historic tax credit is one of several, uh, but you know we've also been involved in new markets, tax credit advocacy, low-income housing. Um, on the local level, you know, I'm still sort of feeling uh, through those networks and deciding where AIA is best. You know, one common question that we receive is whether or not we advocate for endangered historic structures. That's a great question because it is one of our missions, of course, to, um, to prioritize preservation. But realizing that uh, in most cases, if there's a developer that's going to demolish a historic place, then they're, they've probably hired an architect to replace it. That's where we kind of get into a little bit of a conflict. Um, but we have great partners over at Memphis Heritage that uh, do the heavy lifting on the preservation piece for us. Yeah, I was going to say that's why you have Memphis Heritage, um, because I totally get that. Because, I mean, the Nylon Net building, um, th there's an architect working on that, <laughs> and they're probably a member. <laughs> so, um, you know, so and and. Uh, yeah, I get that, that you have to, you know, that seems like that's created a lot of opportunities, but so it's kind of a two-part question, which is, I probably shouldn't have done, but anyway, just um, respond to, you know, reflect on that to the, to the extent that you have, you know, local knowledge and experience. When you do do local advocacy, you have to, um, you know, just be careful to always understand that you're representing, has to represent your members. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, we, but we do educate about these case studies of where specifically a, a state historic tax credit would have made the difference. Um, and we, of course, do so in a way that's never demeaning of the architect's work or the developer's choice. Because, as you know, invariably it seems the case is that it simply would not pencil out if you can't make a project economically feasible for the owner or the occupant to come then it um then it's just kind of a hard truth totally yeah totally so okay well very well we definitely need to do something on the on the historic tax credit so we'll talk about that 
uh, for sure. So, Amber, thank you so much for coming on the show. I look forward to having you on again and hearing more about what AIA Memphis is is up to. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to getting Lunatech's wound back up. We're going to see if we can do a COVID safe option. Um, but please reach out if you have more questions. This is fun. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the second half of this week's Memphis Metropolis. I'm here with one of our regular commentators, Holly Jansen Fulkerson, who's the executive director of Memphis Heritage. So welcome back, Holly. Thanks so much for having me again, Emily. I, I love coming on your show. Well, I love having you. So the first half of the today's program I had on Amber Lombardo, who is the uh, the executive director of the Memphis chapter of the AIA. And um, she's been in that position for, I guess, about six months. I haven't had an opportunity to meet her in person, but we had a great conversation. A couple of things I thought from talking to her as it relates to his, to your organization is, first of all, she's obviously a huge, a huge historic preservation supporter and actually has a background in it, which seemed super and just has a vision for how your two organizations can really work together. Yeah, I've gotten to know Amber pretty well over the last few months. And she I'm just so glad she's here in Memphis. And she is such a great um, resource for me, you know, I'm, I'm very new in this work and, um, she has taught me a tremendous amount in, in just a short amount of time. And, uh, we are both excited to collaborate with each other as, as much as possible. She's also just a real fun person and, and, uh, has a great personality. So I'm just glad to know she her. She seemed like a fun person. And I do want to, as I mentioned in the, in that interview, I mean, the idea of, um, you know, state historic tax credits for historic preservation came up. And that's something I want to do in another show on, but because it's something that's very badly needed here. I don't think a lot of people, you know, people who are in the real estate redevelopment world probably know about, you know, the national historic tax credits and, um, and how that can help fund buildings like Crosstown Concourse. And, but I don't think people understand, first of all, that those are only for commercial buildings and uh, not, not for single family. I think they can sometimes be used for multifamily, but commercial buildings. It's for, yeah, I was going to say, it's for income producing right. properties. Income producing what, property. What That's exactly right. And, and but moreover, a lot of states have, their own tax credits that can be very instrumental layered on with the federal tax credits just makes doing renovating older buildings even more feasible. So I was thrilled to hear about that. And I know you must be really happy to have someone to collaborate with you on that. 
Absolutely, especially someone with so much experience in this. Um, it, you know, she really took a lead in uh, Mississippi's work, and now now she's here was, in Miss, was Mississippi so. successful in getting some? Yes, they were, and and an important distinction um, just to note. I, I think it would be so wonderful if if Tennessee could get this program started. Um, I, that's the first step. Um, but what they did in Mississippi, they had sixty million dollars available in tax credits. The the bill that they are talking about passing in Tennessee right now is only five million. Um, and, and so I guess it's one of those things, sure, you know, any little bit will help. Um, I wish we could have a more robust program. Maybe that'll be the next step once we go ahead and, and get this started. If, well, if for sure. And I think that's how I spent a lot, a, many years advocating for a for an affordable housing trust fund. And finally, after I left community development council, they were able to sort of, um, carry that over the finish line. But there's still plenty of work. There's not a um, any kind of renewing funding source associated with that. The city's got to appropriate them. All that to say, but getting it set up is a major accomplishment. So if we can do that, and and then, sure. um, you know, every city is different. Well, we can talk more about this when we do a show on it, but... You know, it also depends on the kind of taxes the state has. You know, Tennessee does not have a lot of taxes that other states do. And in order to do a credit, you got to have a particular tax that you can credit. And um, and so anyway, it's going to be definitely going to be a challenge, but I want to hear more about it. And I would love to hear that happen. So do any um, do any local jurisdictions have either local tax credits or have incentives, low-income loans, grants, that kind of thing to support historic preservation? So that's actually something that Amber and I have been looking into. Um, before we presented to the city council a couple months ago, um, we talked with uh, colleagues in Baltimore um, and Philadelphia about their programs and, and what um, they, they have been, uh, very successful in some of their programs that involve financial incentives. Um, but even more than that, just, um, even just getting some policies in place. And, uh, up in Philadelphia, they created a, a historic preservation task force, um, that was really successful. Um, and I, I would love to recreate something like that here. Okay. So, um, we'll, we'll see what That's happens. That's good information. I, yeah, definitely want to do a bigger discussion on this because we need, I, I know I'm repeating myself, but we really need more resources, especially with all the redevelopment that's starting and happening. We need more resources to make projects even more feasible if they're structures that need to be preserved because they're important to the community. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, that's part of, of one of our strategic goals at Memphis Heritage is to try to be as proactive as possible. You know, I think we've talked about this before um, on this show that uh, the nature of, of historic preservation is oftentimes reactive um, just because it has to be. But it's great to be proactive. And, and these sorts of economic incentives to me is 
one of the best things we can do to be proactive um, and get get the you know funding in place so that these buildings can be preserved. Well, because if you're going to identify, if you're going to reach out to people that own old properties and say, hey, don't tear this down when you're ready to sell it, let us know, you know, you've got to be prepared to help them. It's not enough just to say to wring your hands and, and not to put down advocates, but they don't always have a toolkit that they can give to people. You know, have you considered this program or have you considered that program? And here's an architect that can give you some free in kind. And it could be a package of things, but that's got to be ready to go. Right. Yeah, for sure, and we're and we're working towards it, and we'll get there. So. I'm so happy that there's progress in these areas. It really makes my heart makes my heart glad. Oh, good. Me too. Me too. So, Holly, let's talk about cemeteries. Another another topic that I think could be a whole series because. Memphis is rich in historic cemeteries. So let's start off by, I mean, I've got some, let me just tell you what I want to ask you and then we can talk, you can tell me the order you want to answer these questions. So you've got um, the annual preservation series coming up that's going to be focused on historic cemeteries. So I want people to know about that. But also I have some questions about, you know, how many historic cemeteries we have and, you know, who keeps up with them. And so where's the best way to start that discussion? Um, well, so I think that some of the answers to your questions will be answered by the speakers okay. at our series. And and I will, will uh, uh, maybe I should just give you an overview of, of each talk and, um, and then, uh, we can take it from great. there. So um, our preservation series is, um, in, in case the listeners are not familiar, um, our Memphis Heritage's annual preservation series has been going on for over 20 years, and it's one of our most popular programs. Um, people sign up and buy their tickets even before the lineup is announced. Um, so uh, I, this year is going to be no different. We've gotten a lot of interest already, and we will be um, announcing the official lineup uh, very soon. Um, there's a couple of scheduling issues, uh, but we know who the speakers are, and um, I'm just thrilled about this lineup. Um, and not to keep everybody waiting, but one one more disclaimer: um, we're actually looking to do a, a two-part preservation series this year. Um, last year, the pandemic hit right in the middle of our series, and um, so we postponed it into the until the fall, and we did a virtual pres preservation series. And so this year, we will be doing virtual this spring, and then we'll be coming back in the fall, um, hopefully doing in-person tours of, of cemeteries. Um, if we can't do in-person, then we could do them virtually, but we're really, we've got our fingers crossed that hopefully, you know, outside and socially distance, we'll, we'll be safe to gather and do in-person tours. Um, so the spring series is really focused on more general cemetery topics. Um, and, you know, that are uh, related to local and and cemeteries on the state level. So our first um, speaker is going to be Paul West. 
Um, he is with West Memorials and they're actually the sponsor for our calendar. Um, and they do custom headstones. Uh, are you are you familiar, I'm very familiar with them because of my work on Broad Avenue? And yes, I've been in there. Yes. I've been in there, um, you know, in their showroom many times and seen some of the work you've done. They've done it's really amazing. It is so amazing. And I, I asked Paul, he is such an interesting person and um, a, a shout out to, to their location on Broad Avenue in the old post office. Um, and they've got that beautiful mural on the side there that you can see from Hollywood and Sam Cooper. Um, but Paul is just so interesting. And, and I, when I first met him, I, I went to the shop and he gave me a tour and I was just so fascinated. It's not something that you think about very often, um, you know, your headstone and a, a custom headstone, but there's a real need for it. And they do amazing work and they have their shop right there um, and, you know, do this work in house. Uh, and, and he's also just a, a really wonderful person and gives a lot back to the community. Um, and so he's going to be talking uh, just about his job and his shop. And I, it's going to be really interesting. Okay. That sounds great. Yeah. So then the next speaker is going to be Kim Bearden. Um, of course, she's the director of Elmwood. Um, and she is, she is such a wonderful speaker and she is always so interesting. She is going to be preparing a new program, um, a brand new program. I don't know exactly what it's about, but I'm sure it's going to be great. Um, they, they, I think it might focus on the rural cemetery movement, um, and just kind of the history of, of, uh, cemeteries in general. Then, um, then uh, an, another speaker is going to be Graham Perry. He is the historic cemetery specialist with the state of Tennessee. Um, and he, that was a newly created position um, in the late 2019. So he's um, been on the job for about a year and a half and, and he's the first one to have the job. So he's really making it his own and he's doing a lot of wonderful things. All these, all these cemetery people are just so interesting. Um, you know, you might, might, I not, might not have thought of it that before we got into this, um, you know, in, in this year, but uh, they're just so interesting. And Graham's going to be talking about laws related to cemeteries um, and scandals related to cemeteries. And the state is also, um, in the process of creating a, a database um, covering all cemeteries for the whole really um, yes and it's a much needed resource um, we I, I experienced that firsthand and I'm sure listeners that, that do genealogy and our cemetery enthusiasts already know this um, there's a lot of work to be done on documenting our cemeteries here in Shelby County. Um, there was a survey that was done in the early 1970s. Um, and that's really the most complete information that we have. And it's almost 50 years old. Um, Graham was explaining to me, and I hope I get these numbers right. Um, but it's, it's something in the area of Memphis has about 200 documented cemeteries as opposed to Nashville, which has over a thousand. And Memphis is bigger than Nashville or, or historically, you know, has been many 
for many years. And Graham suspects that there are a lot of undocumented cemeteries here in Shelby County. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM across town. And I'm talking to Holly Jansen-Fulkerson of Memphis Heritage. We're talking about historic cemeteries and specifically a preservation series of lectures and workshops Memphis Heritage has coming up starting in March on the topic of historic cemeteries. Well, I was going to ask you, Holly, if, um, I mean, sort of answer my question, but elaborate on a little bit about if, um, why we have never had that many uh, haven't had good documentation. Of course, I'm tempted to think that a lot of it's probably, you know, very small cemeteries or, you know, African-American sites that were not as, um, people weren't as attentive to keeping them up. But what, what are the different reasons behind that? I think exactly what you've just said, you know, just that um, some of them are very small, you know, sort of family plots that are on private land or in the woods somewhere. Um, Cemeteries deteriorate over time. I mean, anything in the built environment does. Um, And if they're not kept up, the headstones can go missing. They can, you know, sink into the ground. Perhaps there maybe there weren't ever headstones to begin with, you know. Um, so that can make it really hard to locate them. Um, and our, our fourth speaker in the series will actually be touching on this even more, the idea of abandoned and neglected cemeteries. Um, she is, uh, Coriana Close, um, from the University of Memphis. She's an art history professor and she uh, has started a project to document African-American cemeteries here in Memphis and um, she's done a photography project and it's just amazing and I'm so excited to learn more myself. Is any of the photography online that she has done? Yes it's on her website. Um, Send me the link and I can put it in the show notes for people that listen to this as a podcast and also I can put a link if you don't have information up about the speaker series, I can just put a link to that page on your site so people know uh, they can go there and get more information and register. Um, well, I was going to, that also was kind of going to ask, like, we do have a lot of even, you know, good sized cemeteries here that are poorly maintained because the congregation had, if it was a congregation, it's diminished or, you know, for the, the neighborhood has gotten uh, deteriorated and people don't feel comfortable coming into it anymore. And I mean, what, how have other communities sort of wrestled with that? I mean, are there volunteer groups and places that are just dedicated to fixing up old cemeteries? And then who's respond? I'm, I'm asking you way too many questions, but like, who, you know, who's like Zion Cemetery is one I think about that has had a lot of um, fix up. It's on a main road, but like ultimately when volunteers go in and clean up, who's responsible for, I mean, how is that handled in other places? Um, well, I think it's, it's probably different at, you know, different cemeteries. Um, Zion Cemetery has a really active group um, that I, I don't, want to misspeak, but I, I, it's a formal organization. Um, I mean, they have a website and they have a board. Um, so, so they've, they've got their, 
their stuff together. Um, other cemeteries, not so much, um, you know, where it goes in waves, um, where there's a period of time where they'll be active and, and then a period of, of inactivity. I, I think it's important to remember that almost all of this is volunteer work, you know, and volunteers are volunteers and, and they can be very dedicated, but then they can also get other things going on in their lives and, um, you know, and, and they can burn out. So it's a real challenge. Um, I know Hollywood Cemetery and Mount Carmel Cemetery are two African-American cemeteries that have seen some action over the years um, trying to get it fixed up. There is a friend um, of the cemeteries group, um, but it's it's hard. It's hard volunteer work and, you know, you need equipment. You need to get out there and mow the grass and, um, you know, keep that maintained. And yeah, it's a so lot of work. So there's a friends group for old cemeteries in general here or just for Hollywood and Mount Carmel? Um, there are cemetery, there is no central cemetery group. Um, there has been some talk uh, by by Jimmy Rout, the um, Shelby County historian. Um, he has a desire to start a group um, and perhaps a um, even uh, get some funding to be able to to help. Um, you know, maybe establish some sort of trust. So um, I I hope that he's made progress on that. Um, and, and we would love to, you know, help out in any way that we can. Yeah. I mean, I think about it. I think people, um, you know, people of course know about Elmwood. They have a staff and are able to do a lot of fun events. Of course, there's so much great history there and it's a beautiful spot, but also there's graves of, you know, famous Memphians, people you've heard of, and it's kind of a walk through history. And then people know, you know, National Cemetery and, but um, but if there's really 200, then um, what are some, are there others that you have been to or that are particularly notable that you know about that people might want to check out? Um, you know, they're, all of them, I guess, are notable in their own way. Uh, I, I think, you know, of course, the ones down on Elvis Presley Boulevard, um, uh, Forest Hill, Calvary, um, and of course, Hollywood and um, Mount Carmel are located there. Also, Rose Hill is another African American cemetery in that area. Um, it, there's just such interesting um, architecture. It's you know, cemeteries are really like outdoor museums, and um, it, it's very interesting and also interesting to see the differences in in the cemeteries. So, but I would say a lot of the over the the two hundred, you know, undocumented ones or or documented ones and and ones that are undocumented, I would I would venture to guess that a lot of those are small, um, located on private land, um, and that's uh, one of the things that Graham Perry will talk about during his talk. Um, what are the laws related to that, you know, um, and what if you find a cemetery on your land? What are your responsibilities, and what should you do, and um, it's really interesting. Definitely. Well, it's so, so those are the four, the four talks for the spring. And then, what, and then what are yes. you thinking about for the fall or is, do you know? So for, for the fall, um, we're, we're tentatively planning on Raleigh Cemetery, which is one of the oldest cemeteries, um, in Memphis and other exciting locations, um, that will be announced in a few months. Okay. 
Anything else about cemeteries before I ask my other questions? I don't think so. No, I'm just excited for people to tune into our series. It's going to be um, the first four Mondays in March from 6 to 7 p.m. And you can purchase your tickets on Eventbrite and we'll have a link on our and, website. And, and I guess, so. you know, we're going to have to provide our own wine. Yes, unfortunately, that is that is so disappointing um, to not be able to gather in person because that's one of the best things about the preservation series. But um, hopefully, hopefully things will be back to normal. Well, it's a great year. subject, so I really look forward to it. I'm definitely planning to participate. So, great. Holly, before we wrap up, there's been a couple of things in the news that I thought – you would be excited about, I was excited about. One was the um, the plan for Melrose School. Yes. That was such an amazing announcement and, and a, a major surprise to me. Um, I, I'm sure probably a lot of people. I had actually, um, the that information was announced um, in the afternoon and that, that, at lunchtime that same day, I gave a presentation to AIA Memphis on endangered buildings. And I said, you know, Melrose School is, is endangered. We don't know what's going on. And, and then, you know, just a couple hours later, boom, you know, it was very, well, you know, exciting. I started working in community development around 1999, 2000. And, you know, at the time, um, you know, there was still quite a bit of community development activity in Orange Mound. And, you know, there was one group just dedicated, not even a, not even a historic preservation group, but a sort of a group dedicated to sort of redevelopment of Melrose School. And I got to tell you, I never thought we would see that happen. The um, It just seemed like the city had moved on from that. And, of course, the buildings um, deteriorated. And I just didn't. And I, and I really feel like, you know, the leadership of Mayor Strickland, but also particularly, you know, Director Paul Young just said, let's do this. It's such an important anchor and there's so much advocacy for it. People identify with it so strongly, but I just never thought it was going to happen. And the fact that it's been, um, you know, there was, there was some, you know, pre-activation of it a couple of years ago, and that was really exciting to see it finally happen. It just, another thing that just gladdens my heart. I have a, a lot of heart gladdening happening today. Yeah, it it's just such amazing news. And I, I, I felt the same way that you did, you know, that it just seemed like it wasn't going to happen. I, I, I hesitated to call it, you know, full-on endangered um, because of all of the advocates in Orange Mound who I don't think would, would let anything serious happen to it. But the fact, you know, remained that it, it just didn't seem like, you know, the leadership really was considering it. And I'm so grateful to to Paul Young and, and Mayor Strickland for making this happen. Well, a lot of times things just die from neglect. I mean, even if they're not torn down, right. they just get to the point where um, it's just too far gone, but it's, it's, it's really yeah. wonderful. The other thing that I was happy to hear about was the Highland Heights Church and the fact that that was back on the market and then the Heights CDC is actually having a design competition. What a great idea to 
generate ideas for how that could be used. Yeah, I I thought it was an amazing idea myself. Um, I'm so excited to see what people come up with. I think it'll be really interesting. And I I think we've talked about this um, before on on this program. But as as we move through the pandemic and just even what outside of the pandemic, religious buildings are becoming endangered. Congregations are shrinking, and they don't need such large buildings. And it's going to take a lot of thinking outside of the box to adaptively reuse these these buildings, which will be 100% worth it, um, you know, but there are definitely challenges. And Highland Heights is, is doing an amazing job thinking outside well, of the Well, the, the Heights line, of course, is also getting some funding through this, um, this redevelopment fund that the mayor is setting up. But I agree with you. I mean, summer, there's been all kinds of development on Summer Avenue lately. And, you know, not all of it is um, attractive, but um, but I think some of it's coming in with a mind towards um, keeping the look and feel of the neighborhood. And so it's a good time to preserve the interesting buildings that are still there if they can be preserved and not tear it down for something that's just, um, you know, a gas station and a a convenience store. Right. There's plenty of those on summer. Let's, let's keep some of these historic buildings and these architecturally significant buildings. Let's keep them up. I agree with you. So, um, Okay, Holly. Well, this is great. We covered a lot of ground as usual. Um, I'm going to post some information about the preservation series as well as you're going to send me a link to the, the photos or the information about the historic cemeteries. Maybe I should have her on the show at some point because, um, I'd love to. I'd love to do more on cemeteries. You you need to help me brainstorm what some of those programs could be like. Sure, for sure. We I will be glad to make the introduction, and um, I I look forward to talking more about. Okay, cemeteries. great. So I've been talking to Holly Jansen Ferguson from Memphis Heritage, and thank you, Holly, and I look forward to talking to you and seeing you, and hopefully in person again soon. Thanks. Me too, Emily. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.